Welcome to the American College of Emergency Physicians eQual Network series on the Opioid Initiative, and I'm your host, Michelle Lin. This series focuses on reducing opioid-associated harm for our emergency department patients. And in this podcast, I'll help distill webinar pearls from opioid and pain management experts to answer burning questions that us frontline clinicians may have. Today's podcast is about opioid withdrawal and a relatively new kid on the mainstream block, and that is buprenorphine induction in the emergency department. We have the honor of having two experts in pain management and addiction medicine, Dr. Ruben Strayer and Dr. Eric Ketchum. Dr. Strayer is the Associate Medical Director at the Department of Emergency Medicine at Maimonides Medical Center and author of emupdates.com. Dr. Eric Ketchum is the Medical Director for the New Mexico Treatment Services Program and a staff physician at the San Juan Regional Medical Center in New Mexico. So let's kick this off with Ruben, get us all on the same page and up to speed. Why is opioid addiction such a critical topic in healthcare these days? And why is the ED at the center of all things? Every American emergency provider knows that we are in the midst of an opioid addiction epidemic with drug overdose deaths now exceeding peak mortality from guns, HIV, and motor vehicle collisions. Drug overdose is now the leading cause of overall death among Americans under age 50 with more than 600,000 Americans dead between 1999 and 2016, which is roughly the number of people in the state of Vermont. Emergency providers are all too aware of the magnitude of the epidemic because we care for so many of those harmed. We care for people suffering across the entire spectrum of opioid harms, from the patient who presents in pain, hoping to get an intravenous opioid dose or a prescription, to injection harms like cellulitis and complications of HIV, to social harms like homelessness and assault, to overdose patients and cardiac arrest. So emergency providers have a central role to play in mitigating the harms associated with the opioid addiction epidemic because the emergency department is where these patients are. We're going to focus on a very important addiction harm, opioid withdrawal. Opioid withdrawal causes terrible suffering. So we need a strategy for making these patients feel better just for the sake of alleviating suffering. But also people in the throes of dope sickness are desperate for relief. And if they don't get relief in a safe and controlled environment, like an emergency department, They will commit desperate acts to get their hands on street opioids and then subject themselves to the harms of street opioids, which now that the street opioid supply has been contaminated by superfentanyls, the harms of using street opioids have become massively dangerous. And perhaps most importantly, misusers in withdrawal are particularly receptive to and good candidates for harm reduction techniques and also efforts directed at moving them to recovery so that they might be sustainably liberated from the life-ruining and life-ending consequences of addiction. So with that introduction, Eric, can you frame the problem with a case? This is a case I saw recently in an emergency department where I work in New Mexico. A 27-year-old white female, aspiring actress, otherwise healthy, physically fit, no other established past medical history or psychiatric history, in town visiting her family in Los Alamos, New Mexico, from her home in Los Angeles, California. She's a non-smoker, rare alcohol use, and has a bachelor's degree in literature and drama, She admits to opioid addiction using primarily fentanyl, injecting, quote, over a gram, quote, of fentanyl crystals daily and intermittent heroin and prescription tablets when she cannot get fentanyl. She arrived in Los Alamos on day zero, and her last use was that afternoon, just before leaving for the airport. She presented at around 5 p.m. with severe agitation and restlessness, severe diffuse body aches, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, 
abdominal cramping, and rhinorrhea. She says she is in severe opioid withdrawal. After four IV attempts over 30 minutes, which generated a fair amount of conflict with the patient, the ED nursing staff establishes an IV. She has a prolonged course in the ED, and over the next 11 hours, multiple doses of Zofran, Phenergan, Clonidine, three doses of Ativan, two doses of Haldol, and two liters of saline for good measure. After sleeping on and off for the last five hours of her stay, she was discharged with Phenergan and Clonidine prescriptions. 13 hours after discharge, she returns, again in severe opioid withdrawal, basically in the same state as day one, despite taking the prescribed Phenergan and Clonidine. Same syndrome. This time, she also complains of feeling intermittently drowsy and lightheaded with near syncope. Again, she and the nursing staff endure multiple IV sticks, another seven-hour stay in the ED, and another similar slew of medications, this time with a couple of doses of ketamine. And again, she's discharged with the same prescriptions. You may not be surprised to know that she returned on day three with severe opioid withdrawal, identical to days one and two, despite taking the outpatient prescriptions. She now, she is very frustrated, angry, agitated, anxious, crying, and begging the nursing staff to get an IV started. The nursing staff are clearly frustrated and irritated that this patient has returned and the relationship with the nurses is getting contentious before an IV is even attempted. After meeting the patient with empathy, she reluctantly agrees to try sublingual medication first. I explain the Zofran and Bup sublingual approach. She receives Zofran, 8 milligrams ODT, and Bup, the generic monoproduct, 8 milligrams sublingual, and after 20 minutes is feeling some partial improvement. She receives a second Zofran, 8 milligrams ODT, and another Bup, 8 milligrams sublingual. After another 30 minutes, about an hour post-arrival, her opioid withdrawal symptoms have completely resolved. She reports feeling asymptomatic and tremendously relieved, the best she has felt in four days. She receives no IV fluids, no IV sticks. Her vitals return to normal. We then have a frank conversation about getting her into treatment for her opioid use disorder, together with her family, who is supportive, and she was discharged in about one hour and 40 minutes after arrival, and that included about 30 minutes of counseling and education with the patient and family, and time for her to feel comfortable going home, as she had expected a prolonged ED stay. I provided this patient with a prescription for bup, 8 milligrams, naloxone 2 milligram strips to bridge her getting into treatment. I advised her to stop the clonidine and Phenergan. We had a follow-up phone call three days later. All of her symptoms were well controlled with the bup prescription. She was doing well on the bup naloxone strips, two to three strips a day, and no return of anything other than mild intermittent withdrawal symptoms, which resolved with the bup and no further ED visits. She was still working with her family, pursuing referrals to get into treatment. That's a pretty dramatic case that illustrates the problem with non-opioid therapies that are classically used for opioid withdrawal. To best treat opioid withdrawal, it's useful to understand the symptoms. But more important is to understand that opioid withdrawal is hell on earth. Severe opioid withdrawal is often described as a sort of torture that combines intense physical and emotional pain that opioid-dependent people will do anything to avoid. Opioid-dependent people live constantly terrified of losing their supply of opioids and withdrawing. In the way that people addicted to opioids behave, the risks they take, the crimes they commit, it all makes a lot more sense when you understand that withdrawal is hell on earth. Here are the main specific symptoms of opioid withdrawal. Humans have a natural system of endogenous opioid production that modulates opioid receptors all over the body. With daily exogenous opioid consumption, this system, which regulates our mood, GI motility, autonomic tone, and of course pain, is thrown into disarray and when an opioid-dependent person abruptly stops taking opioids, the effects are often dramatic across multiple organ systems. There are a variety of non-opioid medications used to treat the symptoms of opioid withdrawal. 
The best known and most studied is clonidine, a centrally acting alpha-2 receptor agonist that acts as a sympatholytic. Though clonidine isn't going to be sufficient for most patients by itself, it modestly improves the hyperadrenergic symptoms of opioid withdrawal, and when combined with other agents can offer adequate symptom relief. There are a couple of clonidine analogs that have an evolving role in this context. Dexmedetomidine, trade name Presidex, is a parenteral alpha-2 agonist that has more pronounced CNS effects, sedation, compared to the hypotension and bradycardia you can see with clonidine. Dexmedetomidine is usually given intravenously as a loading dose followed by an infusion, though it can be used intramuscularly and may be a valuable addition to our sedative armamentarium for agitation of any sort, including opioid withdrawal, though data is at the moment quite limited. Lofexidine is another alpha-2 agonist that has been in use since the 1980s, but was just approved by the FDA for the treatment of opioid withdrawal a few weeks ago and will be marketed in the U.S. under trade name Lucimira. Lofexidine has been demonstrated to be effective in treating some symptoms of opioid withdrawal with fewer cardiovascular effects than clonidine. It's likely superior to clonidine as the primary non-opioid therapy for opioid withdrawal and will certainly be more expensive, so an exciting prospect. Pain can be treated with simple analgesics, NSAIDs, and acetaminophen. Because these patients are often not tolerating PO, Ketorolac is often used. Muscle relaxant-type drugs like gabapentin, baclofen, and tizanidine are often used for patients with prominent myalgias and arthralgias. Dope-sick patients will often have severe vomiting, diarrhea, and abdominal cramping, and we can take the edge off these symptoms with any of the usual therapies we offer to patients with GI distress, many of which also have analgesic or sedating effects, which is welcome in this context. Ondansetron is commonly used, and the preferred phenothiazine is promethazine because it's so sedating. Antispasmodics and antidiarrheal medications like loperamide and dicyclamine are often used, as well as antihistamines like diphenhydramine or hydroxyzine. I think most providers will agree that the non-opioid treatments that quote-unquote work best for patients with significant opioid withdrawal are the agents used to treat agitation and restlessness. Benzodiazepines, antipsychotics like the sedating butorphanones, haloperidol or droperidol, or newer drugs such as olanzapine as well as ketamine, which is an analgesic, sedative, or anesthetic, depending on the dose. We use these agents to treat agitation and restlessness, but agitation and restlessness should also be in quotes because what's going on when you use these powerful sedatives to treat opioid withdrawal is you're just snowing the patient. And this points to one of the problems with the use of non-opioid medications to treat opioid withdrawal, which is that while you can take the edge off of some of the symptoms, you're not treating the problem. And so patients in severe opioid withdrawal are not going to be adequately managed with non-opioids for the same reason that a patient who has severe pain from appendicitis is not going to be adequately managed with opioids. And because clonidine, ibuprofen, and phenergan don't address the problem, which is a billion screaming mu receptors, they don't work well. So trying to make the patient comfortable enough to be discharged often doesn't work unless you sedate the patient to unconsciousness, at which point they still can't be discharged because they're unconscious and you end up with these 5, 10, 15-hour ED stays where everyone is miserable. The patient, the nurse, the doctor, the other patients, it's often a pretty bad scene. The case of the young woman I presented, I think, highlights these two problems. She had a long ED stay, went home, and bounced back the next day even worse, requiring another long ED stay, and then bounced back a third time until her opioid withdrawal was finally treated with an opioid agonist. Even if you can control the somatic symptoms well enough to discharge the patient, when you treat withdrawal with non-opioids, the patient is still left with a deranged brain chemistry that causes cravings, cravings that last for months, if not years, even if abstinence is achieved. 
and are fed by feelings of dysphoria and despair, which make the patient highly vulnerable and highly likely to self-treat with street opioids. And in 2018, street opioids are no longer just oxy and heroin. They're fentanyl and carfentanyl. Given how dangerous street opioids are in 2018, discharging an opioid-dependent person in withdrawal is a very dangerous discharge. And now we have a powerful alternative, medication-assisted treatment, MAT, in the emergency department. This used to be exclusively the domain of addiction specialists, but emergency providers are now empowered to move patients with opioid use disorder to recovery using the best treatment for opioid addiction, medication-assisted treatment. MAT is by far the most effective treatment for opioid addiction. A few key facts about opioid addiction treatment. Opioids affect the brain differently from alcohol, and thus opioid addiction does not respond well to the same treatments as alcoholism. Overall, abstinence-based treatments, including residential programs, have a relapse rate at one year of about 95%. The same for 12-step programs, such as Narcotics Anonymous, which have a one-year success rate of only about 5%. In addiction medicine, we know that relapse is a part of recovery. There is no treatment with a 100% success rate. However, although the one-year success rates of MAT programs vary based upon many factors, at even 50% one-year sobriety, these results are a vast improvement over abstinence-based treatments. Wow, I did not realize that there was such a high relapse rate for abstinence-based programs, and hopefully MAT programs result in much better outcomes. Specifically, the medication options we're talking about here are naltrexone, methadone, and buprenorphine. Listen to these two experts take a shared, deeper dive into opioid withdrawal treatment programs that focus specifically on buprenorphine, or bup for short for those in the know. Take it away, Dr. Strayer and Dr. Ketchum. Depot naltrexone, trade name Vivitrol, is a monthly injection of what is basically long-acting naloxone, so it's medication-assisted abstinence. Vivitrol blocks reward from opioid use, and the hope is that over time, as the reward sensation for using opioids is continually blocked, the patient will crave less and be able to control those cravings when the period of Vivitrol treatment, which is usually several months, is completed. However, the patient must have already completed withdrawal or completely weaned off the opioids they're abusing, be that prescription opioids or street drugs, or Vivitrol will precipitate withdrawal. And I've seen naltrexone precipitate very severe withdrawal. Vivitrol is increasingly used in correctional facilities and residential programs, and some patients opt for Vivitrol after detoxing or after completion of an abstinence program. Overall, outpatient numbers are still low. So there doesn't seem to be much of a role for this medication in the ED. Initiating Vivitrol is not something emergency providers are going to be doing. It's just important for us to know what it is and what it does. Eric, since you run a methadone clinic, you want to tell us some of the basics about methadone? Certainly. First of all, methadone is a very effective treatment for opioid addiction, and it has been in use since the early 1970s. It has traditionally been regarded as the gold standard by which other opioid addiction treatments are measured. However, methadone is a complex medication and for addiction treatment is appropriately only used in dedicated addiction clinics. Methadone is a full mu agonist with a long half-life of about 24 hours. The dosing is very patient-specific and the dose must be gradually titrated up to an effective dose then regularly monitored and adjusted. Methadone clinics almost exclusively use liquid methadone to deter diversion. Patients gradually earn the right to take home more of their doses when they demonstrate long-term dosing compliance and sobriety as measured by urinalysis. However, many addiction specialists now regard methadone as second-line therapy for patients who fail bup therapy, 
Thus, methadone clinics are sort of the opioid addiction safety net, if you will. Clearly, methadone clinics are not a universal solution. Patients must travel to a clinic daily to dose. Methadone clinics are not accessible to patients in many suburban and rural locations. And while we encourage all of our patients to be gainfully employed, the daily travel to a methadone clinic can really impede a lot of employment opportunities. Furthermore, the daily congregation at the methadone clinic with other patients with opioid addiction has pros and cons. The well-run clinic with patients appropriately and effectively dosed can serve as a huge support group. The poorly run clinic, however, which leaves its patients chronically underdosed, becomes a target-rich environment for heroin dealers. So the emergency department is not the place to initiate methadone as medication-assisted treatment for addiction. I couldn't agree more. But many patients have been prescribed methadone for pain and take it as tablets. True, and I would opine that prescribing methadone for pain is a very risky business. While it has a 24-hour half-life for treating dependency, its effective half-life is only about eight hours as an analgesic. Furthermore, it has a slow rate of onset and peaks in three to four hours. Thus, there is the obvious temptation among patients to take additional tablets for pain, as after an hour, a patient may not feel much pain relief or sedation. Unfortunately, the half-life as a respiratory depressant remains about 24 hours. Not surprisingly, the vast majority of methadone overdose deaths are associated with methadone prescribed for pain or diverted methadone. On that note, nearly all diverted methadone is in the prescription tablet form. We're going to focus on buprenorphine. Bup has unique properties which make it a terrific treatment for opioid addiction and make it suitable to initiate in the ED, which hugely extends the capability of emergency providers to care for patients with opioid use disorder. But Bup has unusual and remarkable properties that anyone who uses it has to understand. Buprenorphine is a partial agonist at the mu receptor, at the same time that it has a higher affinity for the mu receptor than just about every other opioid. It has a long dose-dependent duration of action, but has a much more rapid onset and peaks much more quickly than methadone. Bup relieves withdrawal symptoms much faster and more effectively than traditional non-opioid therapies, but is administered sublingually. And while it absorbs quickly, it reaches mu receptors much more slowly than typical IV opioids and does not give the rush or high of other IV intranasal or inhaled opioids. Bup's high affinity for the mu receptor blocks other opioids from binding, which means that patients who are therapeutic on Bup are relatively protected from overdosing on full agonists like heroin or oxy. Because Bup is a partial and not a full agonist, it induces less euphoria, particularly after the first dose. And in fact, many describe never getting any euphoria from Bup. Sublingual buprenorphine is an effective analgesic and 0.3 milligrams IV is equivalent to 7.5 milligrams of IV morphine. However, we haven't figured out how to optimally dose sublingual bup for acute pain in the opioid naive patients. If you do try to use it for acute pain, the dose is much lower than what is used to treat opioid withdrawal or initiate MAT for opioid addiction. Again, bup is a partial agonist at the mu receptor, and thus it has a ceiling effect on respiratory depression, at least in adults. Studies have demonstrated there is no more respiratory depression at 32 milligrams than at 16 milligrams. However, bup may potentiate the respiratory depression effects of alcohol and other sedating medications, certainly benzodiazepines, but other classes as well. This is particularly important consideration if prescribing bup. You know, many emergency physicians may not have administered buprenorphine before in the ED. What are some key legal considerations that they should know about? Number one, any doc can use bup in the ED to treat opioid withdrawal. Number two, any doc can prescribe bup for pain. Thirdly, however, one must have a DEA license X waiver to prescribe bup for addiction. 
Bup has a long half-life, about 36 hours, in its effect on cravings and or withdrawal. When dosed daily at a therapeutic dose after the first dose, first few doses, Bup maintains the patient at a therapeutic level, a steady state. This aspect of treatment is very similar to methadone, in which after a few days of consistent dosing, a steady state is reached. It is this steady state which helps eliminate withdrawal symptoms and cravings. Again, the concept is similar to methadone, which has a half-life of about 24 hours. However, bup is easier to dose and safe for office-based treatment. I would like to make this additional point. Beginning MAT with bup in the ED does not preclude or complicate transitioning the patient to methadone in an addiction clinic, as that may be a better option or the only option for follow-up for your patient. Bup is effective within 15 minutes sublingual and reaches its peak effect in about one hour. Buprenorphine tabs or strips must be placed sublingually, not anywhere else in the mouth. It's not an oral dissolving tablet like condansatron. So if you start administering bup in your department, you want to make sure the nursing staff are up to speed on this. Suboxone is a brand name. Others are Zubzolve and Bunavail. All three brands are combinations of buprenorphine and naloxone, either tablets or film strips. The milligram ratio of bup and naloxone and suboxone is 4 to 1 and similar in the other brands. However, naloxone has a very poor sublingual and oral bioavailability. Naloxone is only included to prevent the dissolution and IV injection of buprenorphine. Thus, in my ED, we only use the generic monoproduct bup because, number one, it's administered by a nurse, so we don't have to worry that it's going to be crushed and injected, and number two, it's less expensive. Folks are often confused by the combination of bup and naloxone because buprenorphine can precipitate withdrawal in opioid-dependent patients, as we'll discuss in a moment. But buprenorphine precipitated withdrawal is a feature of the pharmacology of bup itself. It has nothing to do with naloxone component of suboxone. Naloxone is added to buprenorphine in these preparations only to prevent abuse by crushing and injecting. When suboxone is taken sublingually as intended, the naloxone has no bioavailability and has no effect. So our listeners can better understand usual clinic dosing. I'm going to digress briefly and talk about clinic dosing type initiation. Therapeutic dosing can begin on the first day of treatment. Older protocols suggested starting at low doses and observing the patient in clinic for hours and adding additional dosing. This is rarely done anymore, primarily because the drug is well tolerated and most patients with OUD have had experience with buprenorphine, usually not prescribed for them, but have used bup to self-treat their withdrawal symptoms and or their opiate use disorder. Effective dosing is related to the volume or dose of the patient's habit or tolerance. For example, this is my rule of thumb for initial effective bup dosing in clinic. If the patient is using less than 50 milligrams a day of oxycodone or less than a half a gram a day of heroin, I start the patient on 2 to 4 milligrams a day. If the patient is using 150 to 200 milligrams per day of oxy or 2 grams per day or so of heroin or more, I start them at 16 milligrams a day. In your community, the patient may not speak in terms of grams of heroin, instead using terms such as BB, balloon, bag, or 20. However, usually with a little discussion, it doesn't take long to figure out if the patient is a high-dose user or a low-dose user. Since most ED docs are not fluent in this terminology, we try to keep ED dosing protocols simple. Another common clinic scenario is the patient who states that he or she has been buying 8-milligram bup strips, taking two a day for three months, and that it has been working well. In that case, I start the patient on 16 milligrams a day. I just dosing on follow-up visits. Buprenorphine has the potential to make a huge impact in overdose morbidity and mortality. In 1996, France responded to its heroin overdose epidemic by training and licensing GPs to prescribe buprenorphine. 
And over a period of eight years, there was a 90%, 90% reduction in heroin overdoses countrywide. And it doesn't only work for French people. Baltimore saw an impressive decrease in overdose mortality by expanding MAT, about a 50% reduction in heroin overdose deaths, despite substantial increases in heroin purity. And this Swedish investigator randomized people addicted to heroin to buprenorphine or a six-day buprenorphine taper followed by placebo. All patients got regular addiction counseling. Treatment retention was 75% in the bup plus counseling group and in the placebo plus counseling group, 0%. At one year, four of the 20 patients randomized to placebo were dead and in the buprenorphine group, 100% survival. So in this small sample, for every five patients treated with bup for one year, you save one life. Methadone clinics require mandatory monthly counseling sessions with all patients. The counselors provide many wraparound services for our patients, helping them deal with legal issues, transportation services, signing up for Medicaid, crisis mitigation, etc. However, this review confirmed that in methadone programs, the mandatory counseling sessions by themselves do not improve long-term patient sobriety. People addicted to opioids benefit from talking to a therapist. Everyone probably would benefit from talking to a therapist. Lord knows I would. But opioid addiction is not a failure of willpower. It is a disease of deranged brain chemistry, and the treatment is an opioid agonist. There is so far a single RCT demonstrating the effectiveness of ED-initiated buprenorphine by Gail D'Onofrio and her group at Yale, where they randomized 300 opioid use disorder patients to buprenorphine, plus a discussion with a patient advocate called an ESPERT screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment, ESPERT. So group number one was BUP plus ESPERT. Group number two was just an ESPERT without buprenorphine. And patients got a pamphlet referring them to addiction resources. And in group number three, patients were just handed a pamphlet alone. No BUP, no ESPERT. Note that if the patient was in withdrawal, they received a dose of BUP in the ED as well as a prescription. As we'll discuss in a moment, you can't administer BUP to an opioid-dependent person if they're not in withdrawal because BUP will precipitate withdrawal. So in the Yale study, patients not in withdrawal received a prescription for BUP to initiate at home once they develop adequate withdrawal. Their primary result was patients engaged in addiction treatment at 30 days, 78% in the BUP group, twice as many as in the referral group. And adding an expert discussion with an advocate to the referral pamphlet alone made no difference. They also looked at the impact on admissions, and the buprenorphine group utilized one-third the amount of inpatient addiction services as the referral and expert groups. Let's talk about the three-day rule. This rule was designed to allow settings such as the ED, where there are few docs with X waivers, the ability to treat patients daily if necessary until the patient can get into a clinic. In the outpatient setting, again, clinics, jails, the ED, without having a DEA X waiver, one day's medication can be administered or given to a patient at one time. The patient can't take any home and the medication can't be dispensed. Treatment can only be carried out for three days. For example, a patient could be treated Friday, Saturday, Sunday, then get into a clinic on Monday. That is the idea. The three days cannot be extended. The patient cannot come back for day number four. However, the patient could go away even for a few days and return again for another three days if needed. The question often comes up, is it necessary to be able to refer a patient to an opioid addiction treatment clinic to administer BUP in the ED for withdrawal or MAT? Well, officially it is required. However, in practicality, it is not truly necessary, as ensuring clinic referral is not the DEA's priority. The DEA cares about diversion of prescribed or dispensed BUP. 
the DEA is far, far less concerned with how we order a dose in the ED or how it is administered by a nurse, assuming the nurse does administer the dose. This has been confirmed to me by a national director of the DEA's diversion division. Now, some may argue that if the patient doesn't have a clinic to go to and the patient isn't in severe withdrawal, then we shouldn't administer bup in the ED. I disagree, as I and other experts would opine, for that patient with OUD, the day he receives a dose of bup in the ED is a day that he is not injecting heroin or street fentanyl and is not at risk of overdose. Returning to buprenorphine's unique pharmacology, remember that bup is a partial agonist and also has a higher affinity for the mu receptor than just about all other opioids, which is very important because if you have oxy or heroin in your system and you take bup, bup will replace them on the mu receptor. But because bup is a partial agonist replacing a full agonist, the patient will withdraw. This is called buprenorphine precipitated withdrawal. So buprenorphine is very effective at relieving withdrawal symptoms for most opioid-dependent patients. But if an opioid-dependent patient is not in withdrawal, buprenorphine will precipitate a withdrawal that can make the patient absolutely miserable. Ruben, you are correct. Bup-precipitated withdrawal can be horrible and can make patients feel like Janet Lee in Psycho. I know because I have certainly caused and treated bup-precipitated withdrawal in more than a few patients over the years. The good news about bup-precipitated withdrawal is that when initiating MAT, it is usually avoidable. The key steps, if possible, obtain a basic opioid use history. What does the patient usually use and what has the patient been using lately? Is the patient a low-dose user or a high-dose user? When was the patient's last dose? How many hours ago? I understand that many emergency physicians may be skeptical of being able to obtain this history, but in my experience in the ED, particularly if we're talking about initiating MAT with a patient who wants help, if you ask the patient and seem empathetic, they will tell you. Now, ensure the patient is in adequate withdrawal or that the withdrawal is near completion. Some patients want to start MAT even though they have endured and completed the acute withdrawal phase because the cravings are still tormenting them. For short-acting opioids, a patient should be in at least mild withdrawal. But a patient should be in at least moderate withdrawal for long-acting opioids, such as methadone. And getting to moderate withdrawal may take two days or more of methadone abstinence unless it is precipitated. I've made this mistake in my clinic. Fortunately, most of my patients eventually forgave me. To measure withdrawal, perform a COW score. This is a quick 11-element scale, which includes signs such as heart rate, pupil size, rhinorrhea, tremor, and restlessness. A cow's greater than or equal to 8 is considered mild. Greater than or equal to 13 is considered moderate. Greater than or equal to 36, severe. Takes less than a minute to score. Quick online calculators are easy to find. One question a lot of us have been thinking about has to do with patients who overdosed in the field and got naloxone, usually by EMS. Many of these patients come to us in severe withdrawal. It seems like such a great opportunity to treat that withdrawal with buprenorphine and use the occasion of their overdose to initiate addiction treatment. Ruben, as you would say, this is sort of an evidence-free zone of practice. Some of our colleagues have reported administering bup in these circumstances without precipitating further withdrawal, but there is scant published data. My personal experience overall has been positive with administering bup in cases of naloxone precipitated withdrawal. However, to avoid precipitating withdrawal after naloxone, I would make the following recommendations based solely on my experience. As always, try to get an opioid use history from the patient. This should be a shared decision-making with the patient, and many patients will decline. If the patient only uses short-acting opioids, such as heroin or oxycodone, consider initiating bup. Again, in my personal experience, this usually goes well, but there is no published data from the ED. 
Additionally, we should be prepared to monitor the patient beyond the period when the naloxone would have worn off and for an hour after bup administration. Consider offering non-opioid withdrawal treatment as well if the patient is already withdrawing from naloxone. After naloxone, I recommend caution when giving bup to patients on long half-life opioids such as methadone, MS-Contin, Opana, etc. As always, I recommend an informed discussion with the patient. Consider bup particularly if the patient desires to transition to bup MAT and be prepared for a few hours of observation in the ED and potentially having to administer multiple doses of bup. Another controversy in the addiction medicine community is the best way to treat buprenorphine-precipitated withdrawal. This can happen with bup administered to patients by a clinician, but also some opioid misusers will take bup that they acquired on the street and precipitate withdrawal themselves. Well, this is also not well studied and therefore is somewhat controversial and another data-free zone, so to speak, as there is scant published data on bup precipitated withdrawal as well. Certainly, we can offer non-opioid treatment, clonidine, antiemetics, etc., However, based on my experience and discussions with other addiction specialists, I usually administer additional buprenorphine, and I have had good success using additional bup. Titrate additional doses while the patient is monitored until withdrawal symptoms have subsided. I usually add additional bup dose every 30 minutes until the symptoms have resolved. And if our patient looked like Janet Lee, take her from her psycho scream back to her usual self. I must add this word of caution. Nausea is a common adverse effect of buprenorphine. Do not assume that all nausea induced by bup is due to precipitated withdrawal. If the patient is only vomiting and there are no other withdrawal symptoms, do not repeat bup, but treat the nausea. And if it is not clear if this is isolated nausea vomiting, one can always review a cow score to check for other symptoms of opioid withdrawal. The best way to treat buprenorphine-precipitated withdrawal is not to cause buprenorphine-precipitated withdrawal. So for opioid-dependent patients who are not in withdrawal or are just starting to withdraw, they should not be administered bup in the ED. Or you can watch them for what might be many hours to wait for their withdrawal symptoms to progress. Avoid initiating bup when the cow score is less than 8. The higher the cows, the more severe the withdrawal, the more satisfied the patient and the provider will be with bup initiation. And be very careful with patients who take methadone every day. For patients who are enrolled in a methadone program, if they present to the ED, they should generally be sent back to that program, or if they have significant withdrawal symptoms, treated with methadone. If they're taking street methadone and are in withdrawal, make sure that they are truly in severe withdrawal. You want to wait for an even higher cow score in these patients, greater than 13 or 14. Many ED-initiated buprenorphine pathways exclude methadone patients altogether. Patients who are significantly intoxicated should be reapproached for bup when sober and be careful prescribing to patients who are heavy users of alcohol or benzos. They are at risk for respiratory depression with bup. Chronic pain patients who are taking high doses of prescribed opioids are challenging to manage in acute care. Most of these patients are being harmed by opioids. Their pain is perpetuated and worsened by the hyperalgesic effects of daily opioid use, and many of these patients live on various points along the trajectory of addiction and can be vulnerable to acquisition harms, street drug harms, injection harms. The treatment of these patients centers on slowly reducing their prescription opioid use over months and years. Some of them can be successfully transitioned to buprenorphine, but this cannot be accomplished through the emergency department. When these patients present in pain, the best care involves treating their symptoms with non-opioids and having an honest discussion with the patient about how they're being harmed by opioids, encouraging them to work with their prescribers or referring them to specialized addiction care. If these patients present in withdrawal, buprenorphine may be appropriate and helpful, but like methadone patients, be sure that they have an objectively high cow score 
and are willing to follow with an addiction doc. In patients with severe medical illnesses like renal failure, advanced liver disease, heart failure, severe COPD, these patients can and should absolutely be treated for addiction with buprenorphine, but are of course higher risk and should be initiated with a team-based approach, usually involving an addiction physician. Let's discuss some basic EDBUP dosing concepts. Without referring to a flow diagram or a more extensive protocol, I boil this down to a simple four-step approach. Step one, screen out the high-risk patients. Step two, consider the patient's use history, average daily opioid use. In my experience, if you ask the patient, the patient will tell you, is the patient a high-volume user or a low-volume user? Step three, what is the severity of withdrawal? Example, low-dose user, mild to moderate withdrawal, consider four milligrams of bup. High-dose user and at least mild withdrawal, start at eight milligrams of bup. Step four, to optimize the patient experience, I repeat dosing every 30 minutes as necessary to get the patient comfortable. I do this because I want the patient's withdrawal symptoms to be resolved. Then the patient can have a meaningful conversation with a social worker, a peer counselor, or a patient advocate for clinic referral. As a bonus, if there are no contraindications, not taking other sedating medications, benzos, alcohol abuser, consider buprenorphine loading up to 24 to 32 milligrams. There is growing evidence, although not conclusive yet, that doing so for the properly selected patient can help keep the patient from using until that patient can get to follow-up. I have added this option to my ED practice. Alternatively, if you have an X waiver, write the patient a short-term buc prescription. This prolongs the return of withdrawal symptoms and gives the patient more time to get to a clinic without having to return to the ED. Again, avoid bup loading in the polypharmacy patient. Ruben, I have often heard the complaint from ED docs and nurses that if we start administering bup in the ED, we'll be drowning with bup seekers. What's the story there? I often hear from emergency providers who have a variety of concerns about suboxone abuse. These are legitimate concerns as buprenorphine is definitely abusable and suboxone has significant street value in many communities. But emergency departments that have started bup programs have not had significant problems with this. Buprenorphine's pharmacology doesn't lend itself well to abuse, as we've discussed, because of its slow onset when taken sublingually compared to opioids of abuse, which makes it less euphoriant. And buprenorphine's precipitated withdrawal properties, they're well understood on the street, so you're not going to have folks lined up to get a hit of bup in the ED. Addicts who come in requesting bup by name are withdrawing, and we want these patients to get bup loaded. Even if they're not interested in moving to recovery today, Every hour that their mu receptors are occupied by buprenorphine is an hour they're protected from cravings and overdose. And when they're ready to make a change, they'll remember how effective bup is for dope sickness. One of the predictors of long-term success of buprenorphine is prior exposure to buprenorphine. And what's the alternative? If you don't treat them for withdrawal safely with bup, they'll treat their withdrawal with street opioids, which will land them in the ED with acquisition harms like trauma and crime, injection harms like cellulitis and endocarditis, and of course, some of them will end up dead with a needle in their arm. Malingering for a buprenorphine prescription is more likely than trying to score a dose of bup in the ED because these prescriptions are worth money. Nobody wants to be part of a diversion scheme, but at a time when heroin is cut with superfentanyls, consider where the balance of harm is here. Consider who your diverter patient is diverting suboxone to. Your diverting patient is actually taking suboxone into the street opioid using community and selling it to exactly the people who need to be using it. Again, every time that a heroin user uses bup instead of heroin, he stays safe for a little longer, has a little longer to make the move to recovery. When street opioid users come to the ED asking for bup, you have the opportunity to save a life. And when you write a suboxone prescription for a diverter, you might be saving lives too. And to that cogent argument, I can only say amen. 
ED initiation of buprenorphine is just one part of a set of strategies emergency providers can use to prevent opioid misuse, treat opioid misuse, and reduce harms from opioid misuse. Most important is to prevent opioid-naive patients from developing long-term use from your prescription by prescribing smarter. And existing misusers live on a spectrum of how revealed their misuse is, both to themselves and to their healthcare providers. And revealed misusers live on a spectrum of willingness to move to addiction treatment. These patients all present unique challenges, but emergency providers who have an approach to patients at all points on the opioid misuse spectrum can have a huge impact because, again, the emergency room is where these patients are. You can find a, a summary of these strategies at emupdates.com help. Andrew Herring and his group at Highland recently presented their experience with initiating buprenorphine in the emergency department at high dose as a bridge to close outpatient follow-up. When you initiate using a high dose, you don't need a cohort of ex-waiver docs to prescribe. Remember that any doc can administer buprenorphine to withdrawing patients in the ED. And when you initiate in high dose, you bypass many of the concerns around suboxone abuse and diversion, which have to do with the prescription, because the prescription becomes much less important. You can more effectively skip the prescription if you initiate in high dose. Wow. Now that is a podcast chock full of wonderful pearls on the nuances of buprenorphine in the ED. Drs. Strayer and Ketchum have created a summary document with a stepwise visual algorithm on ED initiation of buprenorphine with various links for additional reading. Again, you can find this on emupdates.com help. Feel free to reference these on shift. It is important to understand medication-assisted treatment is a long-term program. Short-term detox programs have a very high rate of failure. Most opioid-addicted patients will need many months, if not years, of treatment, and a great percentage of patients will need many years or even lifelong treatment. The neuroadaptation to opioids is unique to opioid addiction, as opposed to alcohol dependency. The brain takes a long time to adjust back to a pre-opioid-dependent status. 12-step programs and other abstinence-based programs have a very high rate of failure with OUD. We must think of opioid-dependency addiction as we think of diabetes, hypertension, and other chronic illnesses which need daily medication management. Successfully weaning off opioids for the long term, not just detox, is a slow, gradual process. As I remind my patients, opioid addiction treatment is a journey and a marathon, not a sprint. You know, since methadone programs and more recently buprenorphine programs are becoming more prevalent, I've heard some skeptics make comments like, well, aren't you just exchanging one addiction medicine for another? What are your thoughts? This sentiment completely misunderstands what addiction is and completely misunderstands the difference between addiction and dependence. And the difference between addiction and dependence is everything. Addiction leads addicts to perpetrate massive harms on themselves and everyone around them, become criminals, and often die. Patients with opioid use disorder who are effectively transitioned to agonist therapy return to much more normal, functional lives. Most entrenched opioid users who are effectively transitioned to MAT should probably be on it for the rest of their lives, and these folks lead essentially normal, functional lives indefinitely. Ruben, I couldn't agree more. In fact, witnessing this life-altering transformation in my patients is why I entered addiction medicine. We hope that what we've discussed will help you provide best care to some of the most vulnerable patients we see in emergency medicine. And that's a wrap on opioid withdrawal and buprenorphine induction in the Emerge Department for patients with opioid use disorder, featuring Dr. Ruben Strayer and Dr. Eric Ketchum. Let's do better for this often neglected and stigmatized patient population. 
Thanks for listening to the ASAP Equal Network Opioid Initiative Series. Listen to the other Equal podcasts on SoundCloud or iTunes, or view the webinars on the ASAP Equal website. Until next time, let's keep the opioid epidemic conversation and harm reduction efforts going.